0: Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode.
1: Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, Governor Hobbs has named a new nominee to run the Department of Child Safety.
1: And a conversation about kids and the new generative AI technology, ChatGPT.
0: But first, Republicans in the state legislature are facing a reality this session they have not faced for many years, working with a Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, to pass a budget. If they don't, there will be a government shutdown, and who faces the political fallout from that is yet to be seen. But now, GOP lawmakers want to change the state's constitution to end the possibility of a government shutdown, essentially taking away any consequences for failing to work with Hobbs. Jared McDonald-Evoy has been writing about this for the the Arizona Mirror, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Jared. Good morning. So give us the details here to begin with. How exactly would this work?
2: Yeah, so the Arizona Senate uh, last week passed Senate Concurrent Resolution 1034, which would go to voters uh, in 2024. And this this resolution would change the state's constitution to make it so that come July 1st, um, which is the budget deadline, the the deadline that the state needs to have a budget in order to keep government functioning. Um, And it would make it so by that time, if a budget deal isn't made, if the governor hasn't signed a budget that the legislature has sent to them, or if the legislature hasn't sent them a budget, that it would um, enact the budget from the previous year and continue that budget forward.
0: Isn't this essentially what Republicans just tried to do by passing their so-called skinny budget?
2: Correct. It would, in, in essence, um, make what they tried to do earlier in this session, um, basically law. Uh, if, hmm. if, uh, the Senate, uh, or if the Senate or if the Senate and the House um, are unable to make a deal with the governor and unable to reach any sort of a budget, um, you know, this s- sort of skinny budget that they had tried to pass early this year would end up kind of being kind of the-, the law of the land in in a way. They would be kind of be able to do the skinny budget they would want to do, uh, that they wanted to do this session. Um, and that would be something that would kind of be just baked into the Constitution.
0: Right. And of course, Katie Hobbs vetoed that skinny budget, but this is a way of getting around her. It goes to the voters. You said the soonest this would be in play would be after 2024's election?
2: It would correct. It would be on the 2024 ballot for voters to decide if they want to see uh, uh, this sort of a change to our Constitution to allow for this sort of a budgetary process.
0: Hmm. So critics say this is just another way of getting around, you know, working with a Democratic governor at all. Is it?
2: Um, uh, Critics say say that because, um, you know, right now, Republicans control both the Senate and the House. And the way that this, this budget um, uh, process would work is that, um, you know, come July 1st, if that deadline were met and uh, the, the joint legislative budget committee would also be the one making certain approvals for, um, you know, how certain agencies like the department of education, Arizona healthcare Cost containment system would be uh, getting their, their, their funding. And that committee is also run by the Republicans. So in essence, a lot of the decisions would be being made by the Republican-led legislature. It would basically leave out everyone uh, of, from the Democratic Party. It would leave out Governor Hobbs as well. Hmm. Um, so it would be leaving out the Democrats from this. And also a lot of the things that made, uh, when you get to the end of a budgeting process, when there's a lot of the, the fights that keep the budget from um, you know, when you get to the end in July, it's these one-time uh, budget allocations. Those are completely cut out as well from uh, th- this budget proposal.
0: Hmm. Uh, so last session, though, we kind of thought this might happen, and then there was a big budget showdown, and they ended up passing a truly bipartisan budget. I mean, is this sort of cynical that assuming this will never happen?
2: Um, it we've seen in the last few sessions, sessions have been going longer and longer. And usually that tends to be because of the budget. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the budget ends up being something where there's a lot of, of uh, you know, wheeling and dealing between lawmakers trying to understand, you know, well, what bills or, 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 or projects that do they want to get um, towards the end of the session and things that they want to, to add in. Last year's budget was probably one of the biggest, most bipartisan efforts that we've seen at the legislature in some time. Um, it, it, it may be seen as a cynical move um, because of what we have in, in the executive with the governor to, to some, and it, it is probably a bit in that sense, mm-hmm. but um, you are correct in probably that assumption.
0: So going forward, I mean, is this a little bit of the role of a roll of the dice from the GOP here? because, you know, couldn't there be a a, a situation in the future where it's switched, where Democrats have taken control of some of these chambers and they can pass whatever budget they want?
2: Correct. It it is something that could eventually backfire on on um, Republican lawmakers in the future if, say, one or both chambers uh, switched on on Republicans in the future. And there is a uh, a Republican in the executive mm-hmm. down the line. Um, it could be something where if the the the, the legislative uh, branch is is uh, uh, democratic and the, the executive is um, a, a Republican, and say there is a budget impasse there, they could find themselves on the the, the same you know same end of the stick.
0: Yeah. Last 30 seconds or so, Jared, it sounds like this is sort of a fundamental or could be a fundamental change to the way things happen at the legislature. What would you what do you make of that, given the amount of time you've spent down there?
2: It it is a a pretty fundamental change to the way the budget process works um, in regards to how the budget works down here at the legislature. For the most part, there's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say backroom deals, but, you know, towards the end of the session, when you get, it comes near that that deadline, there's a lot of uh, time spent between lawmakers working to try to figure out, hey, how do we want to, you know, come together and figure out, you know, how do we make this budget work for everyone? How do we make this budget something that we can all agree on? I think that by bypassing this, it would de incentivize a, um, you know. Uh, a, a team and teamship, ship mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, working as a team between yeah. the lawmakers. And uh, I think that that is something that we, we we haven't seen at the legislature in that sort of a sense.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Jared McDonald, Evoy uh, for the Arizona Mirror joining us. Thanks, Jared, as always.
2: Thank you.
1: Governor Hobbs has nominated former state lawmaker David Lujan to run the Department of Child Safety. Lujan most recently served as head of Children's Action Alliance. This comes after Hobbs withdrew her original nominee to lead the agency, Matthew Stewart, over allegations brought up by the chair of the committee set up to vet nominees. With me to talk about the kind of work the new director of the Department of Child Safety should be focusing on is Luis de la Cruz, president and CEO of Arizona Friends of Foster Children Foundation. And Luis, first off, what do you think of the nomination of David Lujan?
3: Look, uh, Mark, I I hesitate to comment because I don't come from a point of knowledge. Uh, But what I can tell you is that the kid that is sitting in a group home, as you and I have this conversation, uh, doesn't really care about... Uh, David Lujan or, or even Luis de la Cruz. He cares about what we can do for them uh, today. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, the only thing I can say is that I, I, there's still a confirmation process that has to take place. And we want to give David a chance and the support that he needs to be able to do this work because it's critically important.
1: Have there been practical impacts on the department and, you know, the kids that it is charged with protecting, you know, sort of this back and forth between having a nominee, having that person serve sort of as an interim basis, then having that person leave and a new nominee? Like, does that impact the, the mission of the agency?
3: Well, look, the agency is is a fairly large agency. I think the practical implications tend to be around the surrounding community of practice, Mark. You know, as as organizations like Arizona Friends of Foster Children Foundation work every day to provide services and impact the life of these children on the field, uh, it's always helpful to have leadership to be at the department to be able to work with. And so, I think the most practical implication is just the lack of of that access point
1: when there is a new leader in place what are the top couple of things that you would tell them that need to be addressed at this agency
3: absolutely i would say there are four key things we need to be thinking about mark number one we need to think and increase awareness for community foster care there just simply isn't enough uh, engagement at the community level and we got to get kids out of group homes number two i would say we need to help kinship families keep children and care for them Uh, Number three, I would tell you that we need to create a strong community of practice and collaboration to actually solve problems and align resources. And I think the fourth one is we need to tackle uh, the racial disparities that exist in the system.
1: When you talk about racial disparities, what what kinds of things specifically are you talking about?
3: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, if you just look at the data, uh, and we can just take a look at one data point, right? There is approximately 14% of the population or the children in the foster care system are african-american now you take that and 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 draw the overlay against the total state population which is about four percent and so we have to be asking the critical questions of why that why that is both in terms of our system our processes and our engagement with the community that might be driving that number
1: you mentioned needing kinship families and more foster families. How much of that comes down to, as you alluded to, like an education component, how much of it comes down to making sure that those potential families would have the resources they need to do those jobs?
3: I think you you, you hit the nail on the head, Mark. There's, I think, two key elements that, that drive uh, this shortage. Number one, uh, making sure that we do a good job at educating and bringing awareness to the problem. I think it feels like back in 2016, when we had 19,000 kids in the system, we would be talking about this every day, we would be deploying and engaging the community uh, a little better. And now that we're at 12,000, it seems that we stopped talking about it. So we got to keep talking about this problem and engaging our community. Uh, I think number two, to your point, it is it is, there is a resource element associated with this. That's what we do at the foundation is we close the gap. Uh, within these resources. Uh, for $19 a day, uh, it's hard to, to bring normalcy uh, to these children that are experiencing very abnormal circumstances. So there is a resource component of it, but I will say vastly, vastly, it's a, an awareness element.
1: So how do you go about then trying to get more residents of the state to sign up to be foster families? Like what, what's the sell there?
3: Well, I, I I would ask maybe David that question and how do we increase that awareness and how do we make sure that we talk about it? I think this is a good start, right? Making sure that we have the platforms to have conversations or, around what foster care is and what you can do to help. Uh, talking about the 12,000 kids that are in the system, most of which are under the age of 10. Um, there are plenty of people in the community that have both space in their homes and also in their hearts to be able to help these children. And so we just got to talk about it more. Uh, We can't shy away from the conversation because uh, of any political implications or because uh, of any perceptions that might be created.
1: How quickly can some of these things be implemented? Like, obviously, we're dealing with kids, and every day that they're in a less than ideal situation is clearly not great. So assuming that you can get an education campaign up and running and, you know, get some more resources flowing, like how quickly can you notice a difference in this kind of area?
3: Well, I think, you know, the department tracks these statistics fairly frequently and so and that's that's you know to the credit of the past administration there's uh some data that we can access um but ultimately it does take time mark but because it takes time we got to get the ball rolling and we got to figure out who's going to be leading this this you know this charge and and that's why i'm you know wishing david the best of luck in this process uh and hoping that we can we can have somebody that we can have a conversation, strategize, and deploy.
1: So this agency was created out of a real problem that was happening in its former agency known as Child Protective Services. I'm curious from your perspective over the last you know number of years, how overall is this agency doing?
3: Sure. Well, I think if we just, again, defer back to the data back in 2016 and, and because of the impetus for creating this separate agency... There was 19,000 kids today, as you and I have this conversation, there's around 12,000. So if we want to just look at a pure volume, you know, that there's been a very dramatic improvement in the number of, of kids in care. Uh, what I would say is there's still a lot of work to do around making sure that once they are in care, that we are actually taking care of them. And uh, this is why, you know, we do the work that we do here at Arizona Friends of Foster Children Foundation.
1: All right. That is Luis de la Cruz, president and CEO of the Arizona Friends of Foster Children Foundation. Luis, thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, it's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, no doubt about it, chat GPT will affect education. We talk to a parent and an educator about the technology's pros and cons.
1: But first, some of the highest profile bills so far this year in the legislature have dealt with cities. Lawmakers approved a bill to ban cities from collecting a residential rental tax. Governor Hobbs vetoed that. They're also discussing a plan to ban cities from imposing a tax on groceries ending charter cities and changing how zoning works in an effort to to deal with the state's affordable housing crisis. This kind of thing is not new. The state and its cities have disputes every year over which level of government should be allowed to do what and under what circumstances. But how are this year's fights playing out? To find out, I spoke with Tom Belshi, executive director of the League of Arizona Cities and Towns, who says several bills this year are challenging local control and revenue. I asked him which ones are high on his radar so far.
4: Well, um, I think uh, the residential rental tax, which uh, uh, we're very grateful that uh, Governor Hobbs vetoed that bill because it had tremendous effect on many cities and towns, not all cities and towns, but many cities and towns that that have that in place. The food bill is particularly, uh, the food tax repeal is uh, particularly problematic because it is the way that many cities and towns pay for a lot of the services that they provide. It's particularly difficult for uh, rural communities. And uh, that's because they don't have a big diversity of of retail items that they can tax. And so, you know, those types of bills are are really problematic. And then uh, there's one that strikes right at the heart of the Arizona Constitution, and that is SCR 1023, uh, which removes charter authority from cities and towns.
1: When you talk about bills like the uh, rental tax bill and the, the food tax repeal, is there a way to do some of those things? You know, proponents say, look, you know, inflation is high. Residents need a break. They're paying too much for all sorts of things. Is there a way to give them those kinds of breaks while maybe not hurting city budgets?
4: You know, uh, we have proposed two different things. Uh, For the residential rental tax, there are states which offer a rebate. Uh, So as part of your income tax filing, you uh, can get a credit for uh, the rent that you have paid during the year. Um, And cities and towns, uh, because that's an income tax, cities and towns will share the hit of that with the state. As far as food is concerned, as tough as it is right now, uh, inflation is usually a temporary, a few years thing. And so we don't believe in making uh, a permanent tax cut as the right way to go. So again, what we propose is that um, there's uh, a, a budget surplus. We could provide, again, a one-time rebate in the form of a one-time cash payment to all Arizona um, uh, citizens, and they all benefit from it. The problem with the food and the residential rental tax is that only uh, only 70 cities out of the 91 cities and towns have a food tax. And I'm not sure of the number of residential rental right off the top of my head, but I know that you know not all cities and towns have a residential rental tax. Therefore, there is a, a hit to certain communities, but not all citizens benefit from it.
1: It's interesting that we have gotten this far in the interview, and we haven't yet talked about a bill that would essentially do away with many zoning uh, ordinances and, and abilities in cities to try to deal with the affordable housing issue. I would imagine that's one that is, if not at the top, fairly high on your list as well.
4: Yes, and I, I neglected to uh, to bring that one up, and it is very high on our list. In fact, uh, it's probably tied up at the top uh, with the ones that I mentioned. and And this is, again, um, if there is anything that, that people would describe as a local issue, it's zoning. The idea in, in S, uh, Senate Bill 1117, uh, the thing that, that we find so, so difficult about it is, is that they're taking away or desiring to take away, proposing to take away any kind of input that citizens would have in the process. Now, compare that to Senate Bill 1103, which does the opposite? It gives flexibility and it gives uh, it is permissive to allow cities and towns to do more things with zoning administratively, but to have it fit their process, their level of sophistication, and have it fit again locally, uh, someplace where we can craft ordinances for different cities that meet their local needs, and it still allows citizens um, their ability to to give their input on zoning decisions made by by the council
1: is there a compromise to be had do you think to try to find some solutions to the housing issue and the housing problem that we have uh, not just in the metro area but around the state where you can sort of address the the kind of nimby issues that some residents and, and some cities ha- have expressed while also making sure that development projects that will bring new housing new affordable housing market rate housing things like that that can happen like is there is there a compromise there
4: Yes, uh, there are, we um, have identified 10 different bills that were introduced uh, this year that we think, well, one, the 1103 that I just mentioned uh, was one of the bills that was a positive step in the right direction where we're working together. There are also uh, things like um, inclusionary zoning, where developers that come into a specific area are asked to make a, a certain number of their homes be affordable. So inclusionary zoning is one idea. There are also financing mechanisms. A lot of states build affordable housing with the tax increment financing. Um, And we are the only state in the United States that doesn't have some form of tax increment financing. There are lots of other problems besides just you know, the NIMBY activity and and lack of finance and those types of things. There are materials issues that are difficult to get. There's a labor shortage. Those have much more to do with the housing problem than the zoning does. And so we want to focus on all of those things and make sure that we're not presenting the idea that the whole reason that there isn't enough homes being built is because of city regulation.
1: Let me ask you before I let you go about a a bill that was passed a few years ago but has been in effect obviously since and has uh, been uh, causing some heartburn among a, a lot of city leaders. That is, of course, the 1487 complaints where a lawmaker can bring to the attorney general a complaint about a city ordinance and the attorney general decides whether or not it follows state law. And if they find it doesn't and the city doesn't do something about it, that city can lose state shared revenue. Is it your expectation that with the change in administration in the attorney general's office that those 1487 complaints will be less of a concern for cities? Like, is that something that that cities maybe aren't as worried about as they were in the past?
4: I wouldn't go that far, Mark. I I believe that the attorney general uh, will do her job and that she will, you know, adjudicate those things uh, according to state law. My hope is that her office and we have every education that this is true that her office will communicate with those cities uh, where these complaints have been received and, and talk with them uh, and work with them and see uh, if there is an actual violation of state law. Uh, we still would like to see this uh, law go away or at least some changes made to it. Uh, but we think that uh, the attorney general will carry out the duty of the office in a, in a way that's uh, you know fitting of that office.
1: All right. That is Tom Belshi, Executive Director at the League of Arizona Cities and Towns. Tom, thanks for your time. I
4: appreciate it. Thank you, Mark.
0: Collecting accurate data about abortions in the U.S. has always been hard. But now, since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, it's even harder. And our next guest says that's a problem. Jasmine Mitani is the data visuals reporter for The 19th, which focuses on covering gender and politics. She wrote a piece recently about the challenge of understanding the abortion landscape in America because of this data gap and why it matters so much. I spoke with her more about it.
5: There are a couple of ways, first of all, to collect abortion data. One of them is by talking to patients, people who actually have abortions. And the other one is collecting data directly from facilities that provide abortions. A lot of data collection is done by asking patients and surveying patients, but that's really difficult to do with abortion because of the stigma and especially now because of the legal climate that we're in, people are more Mm. hesitant to talk about something.
0: So the Dobbs decision has made this even more complicated.
5: Yes, um, the Dobbs decision has made this more complicated. And it's also something that abortion researchers have had to struggle with for a really long time.
0: So it sounds like a lot of this is like just social stigma, right? Like people don't want to talk about this experience, whether it be because they live in a state with restrictive laws on this or because it's personal and difficult. Exactly. Exactly
5: it is really personal. It is really difficult to talk about, you know, reasons why you're getting this. It's, you know, privacy is a huge concern when it comes to asking people about their private health information. And that's just something that is always a concern in any kind of
0: medical research. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no national database that sort of counts up abortions that happen in the U.S., but there are a couple of efforts that have been going on for some time to track this kind of data. Outline those for us.
5: Right. So there's two that are pretty long running. They've both been going since like the 60s or 70s. Um, first is the Centers for Disease Control's Abortion Surveillance System. So that's gathering data from all 50 states, as well as the District of Columbia and New York City, and asking, you know, how many abortions um, were completed in those facilities. Um, the other is the Guttmacher Institute's abortion provider. Survey where they actually have a list because they've been doing this research for so long of you know the facilities in the United States who have provided abortions and they ask every single one of those facilities for data about how many abortions they provided. One mm-hmm. thing I want to say um, is that the Guttmacher Institute's data is often considered more complete than the CDC's because the CDC surveillance system it's optional. Several states don't contribute their data because mm. um, of privacy concerns. One of those states being California it's a huge state. Lots of people yeah. live there. And I think uh, the CDC estimates that about they're missing about like 20% of abortions because of states who don't share data with them.
0: Oh, so that's a huge chunk. Absolutely. So then Jasmine, let's talk about why this matters, like why it's important to have and to try to collect accurate abortion data.
5: So, There's a few reasons. One is simply, you know, abortion is a really big part of people's lives. It's important that we know what resources people need, how it's happening, where it's happening um, in order to better support people throughout all sorts of pregnancies. Another one is abortion data is actually really important for many other public health indicators. Whenever we talk about pregnancy, if you're only counting births, you're really missing a large chunk of people's experiences Failure rates for contraceptives are usually only calculated in perfect conditions, and you know people don't use contraception perfectly. The Guttmacher Institute actually, in another survey it does of patients who are seeking abortions, asks mm. about contraceptive use and then uses that to calculate typical rates for contraceptive failure, which is something that's probably a lot more valuable when you're making you know a high stakes decision about mm. what birth control you're going to use.
0: What about when it comes to mail order, like abortion pills, which are, of course, I know the subject of a couple of big lawsuits right now, but are still available right now. Do we know anything about who gets those, where they go?
5: first of all, you know, medication abortion is incredibly safe. One thing that is difficult to count is self-managed abortions. So mm-hmm. I want to be clear when we talk about self-managed abortions, that means people who um, seek abortions outside of facilities. If you went to a clinic and were prescribed a medication abortion and then ended up going home and taking that, it's not necessarily a self-managed abortion. Right. But people who, for instance, like, order abortion medication from online pharmacies, that would count and because that also would not be captured in any of the data that is being collected from either facilities or patients because there isn't really a record
0: of that. So then lastly, then Jasmine, let's talk about some efforts to change this, right? Like there are various efforts underway, including by those studies that have been going on for a long time that you outlined to improve data collection here. What does that look like? So, the Society
5: for Family Planning launched the We Count survey in anticipation of the Supreme Court's verdict last year. Um, in April 2022, they started asking facilities through their network about the number of abortions um, that were being performed, so that they could directly track month to month, you know, what the effects uh, state restrictions were having on healthcare access. That data uh, is often a trade-off there. Between the type of data that comes from the CDC and the Guttmacher reports, those are really rich demographically. We know a lot of like race, gender information about what type of abortion, and that takes a long time to get, right? To be very thorough, you know, people collect data differently, and then you have to compile it all into one standardized report. Whereas the We Count survey didn't gather any of that information. In order to have those timely counts, they were just keeping track of the number of abortion procedures. And that's Mm. one trade-off that you always have to think about with abortion data.
0: All right. That is Jasmine Mitani, data visuals reporter at the 19th, joining us to talk more about abortion data in the U.S. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for your expertise on this and all the data. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger.
1: And I'm Mark Brody. Residents of Rio Verde foothills are still looking for a temporary solution to their water problems after the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors last week rejected a plan that had been approved by the Scottsdale City Council last month, and a permanent solution still needs to be addressed. The attention on Rio Verde has led to a lot of discussion about whether the community is a kind of canary in the coal mine, a glimpse of what the future might look like as the drought continues and water supplies dwindle. With me to talk about that is Rhett Larson, a professor of water law at ASU Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And Rhett, do you think this situation is a one-off or something that will happen again in Arizona?
6: Well, I think there there may be situations that come up here in Arizona. There are certainly a lot of comparable wildcat subdivisions, that is, uh, subdivisions that aren't subject to the sort of consumer protection laws where you have to disclose water access uh, before selling the water or assure that there's 100 years of water supply uh, for the development. Rio Verde Foothills uh, is a Wildcat subdivision because it was subdivided in such a way as to not be subject to that law. There's certainly other such subdivisions in Arizona, but I don't know how many, and I don't know how many of them have a similar relationship to another municipality where they're trucking water in from that municipality. Uh, So while Wildcat subdivisions are certainly a challenge for water management in Arizona, I don't know how many of them would have a comparable situation uh, as that between Rio Verde foothills and Scottsdale.
1: So legally speaking, is there anything that can be done about wildcat developments to try to limit the number of them that don't necessarily have that assured water supply to try to make sure that people who live there have enough water to, to continue to live there?
6: Well, under the current legal structure, there's no requirement. If you don't meet the definition of a subdivision, if you're subdividing to fewer than six lots and you're under the, the statutory size of the lots, there's nothing that can require those subdivisions under current law to disclose that they don't have 100 years of available water supply. What could we do? We could change the law. You know, We could change the law in such a way that all residential subdivisions, uh, regardless of whether they meet the standard of subdivision or you know, any, any place that's intended for human habitation has to demonstrate uh, you know, assured or adequate water supply. We could devolve authority down to counties or to municipalities to insist upon that kind of a standard for all residential subdivisions, but that would require a change in the law. Under the current laws, it stands the best thing to do is to do your due diligence, and there may be ways to use existing common law approaches to bring lawsuits against developers or real estate agents or real, uh, or sellers of real property who aren't disclosing this, but those would be under sort of common law theories about duties to disclose uh, in, in residential real estate transactions.
1: Right. Does it seem as though there is any momentum to change the standard by which you know, a development would be considered a subdivision there, and which would require more of these of these developments to have that hundred year assured water supply.
6: Well, there may be countervailing forces, which is why this is kind of hard to predict. Because at the same time that this really high profile controversy in the Rio Verde foothills is happening, another controversy is happening with Governor Hobbs' release uh, of the Department of Water Resources report in the Haciampa Basin, which says that there is not going to be 100 years of, of assured water supply out in the west valley out towards buckeye going forward so on the one hand all this negative media attention even na- negative national media attention that rio verde foothills is bringing to arizona and there's i think a strong push in response for this to say hey we need to nip this in the bud we need to make sure that we're not dealing with this kind of problem in the future so the people who are buying homes here can feel confident that they have that water supply There's a countervailing force uh, in the West Valley of saying, well, this, the regulation of groundwater may make it harder for us to build homes out in the West Valley. Maybe we should relax these standards and how that sort of conflict between those, those two controversies right now, how it's going to play out politically is really difficult to predict.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's also the issue, of course, of growth and population. And, you know, Arizona forever has been one of the fastest growing, it seems, uh, states in the Phoenix metro area has been one of the fastest growing metro areas in the country. But I wonder, you mentioned all the, the media attention, even national media attention. I wonder if maybe that has some kind of effect on people potentially coming here, if, if even there's the perception that, you know, that's great. We can move there and buy a house or build a house. But is there going to be enough water for us?
6: Oh, I don't think there's any question that this the Rio Verde foothills the the national media attention is really unwelcome in Arizona. Uh this is being interpreted I think by many people both in Arizona and outside of Arizona as the sort of canary in the coal mine of uh drought and climate change and the consequences of unsustainable growth in Arizona and people outside of this may think well this is This should make us afraid to move to Arizona. I don't agree with that. I think what happened with the Rio Verde foothills is problematic. It's a challenge of land use, but it's not necessarily a bellwether for the sustainability of water going forward.
1: So you mentioned that one possibility might be to devolve the, the authority on this kind of thing to counties or cities or anything like that. And I wonder what are some of the pros and cons of, of that approach as opposed to having it all go through the state?
6: Well, yeah, you're definitely right that there are there are risks and potential benefits to devolving the standard. Devolving the standard may allow you to have greater local control and local concern about groundwater overdraft. I think we've seen that, for example, uh, in the creation of a new active management in Douglas and Cochise County. Concerns of residents there really drove a grassroots movement for greater groundwater management. You could see something like that playing out if you devolved more authority down to the counties. But there's just as likely to be a, a, a different reaction, for example, that there isn't an active management area created in Wilcox and Cochise County, that there are going to be political and economic forces at the local level that are going to run against Uh, more conservation and more careful management. And also you're going to have to be careful about devolving power down to to local municipalities if you're not going to provide them the resources and the expertise that they need to effectively manage.
1: So you mentioned that there are a number of other wildcat subdivisions around the state. What kinds of things do you think that they ought to be doing right now watching what's gone on and going on in Rio Verde, like are there things that that maybe they should be doing to try to prepare to make sure they don't end up in a similar situation?
6: Well, it is in the nature of living in the desert that part of buying land here should be water, should be the first question that you ask. Every person who lives in Arizona, the first thing you should be doing when you're buying land is asking uh, questions about water. Now for those subdivisions, the Wildcat subdivisions, what can they do now? Well, they can talk about creating the kinds of domestic water supply programs that Rio Verde Foothills could have done, where they create an improvement district and help to finance uh, development of water supplies inside, so they create at least a quasi-municipal entity to finance water development. But the problem with that is the same problem that Rio Verde Foothills had, which is some of your residents are, you know, they move to those areas specifically to avoid those kinds of user fees and taxes. Other things that they can do is to talk, be aware of who their water suppliers are and diversify their water portfolio and make sure that they have long-term contracts and that they have backstops and alternatives if, if some of their water providers are making similar decisions as Scottsdale made in this particular instance.
1: All right. That is Rhett Larson with ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Rhett, thanks for your insights. I appreciate it.
6: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. ChatGPT, the new chatbot that is set to revolutionize the way we search online, is already making waves beyond the tech world. Educators and parents are taking notice of the new generative AI technology and wondering what it means for kids in school. From online privacy and misinformation to worries about cheating and plagiarism, it could seem like it's all doom and gloom on that front. But there's a lot of opportunity there as well, according to our next guests. Jessica Early is an English professor at ASU who studies teaching and teaching writing in particular. And Yvonne So is a mother of three and a member of the contribution board for the Arizona Republic. In a recent op-ed, she argues that our state lawmakers might do better to pay attention to the threats posed to kids by things like ChatGPT than drag queens or pronouns. I spoke with them more about the intersection of ChatGPT and the way kids learn, the challenges, and the opportunities. There
7: are concerns, but there's also a lot of excitement Mm. among educators. I think there's two things happening at once. One is that there's this new technology, and like any kind of literacy, it's ever-evolving and changing. And Change can be scary. (laughs) So, on the one side, educators are are voicing concerns about having students use it and worried that they're going to cheat and use that and not learn to write themselves or that it's going to replace human thought and human ideas. Um, And then, on the other hand, there's all sorts of innovations happening and writing professors and researchers using chat GPT in their classes and mm. having students try it out and reflect on it and finding really innovative ways of teaching writing and bringing students on board to see what it has to offer as a technology. Um, and then also what its limitations are because there's both things.
0: That's interesting. So it is sort of a double-edged sword on, on, in your mind. Like it's not all bad. It's not mm. all good. It, it could be, it sounds like a, an opportunity absolutely so one of the
7: things we know in education is that you know every 10 to 25 years there's a literacy crisis and it's there's a lot of rhetoric around it there's usually an article that comes out you know there was an, a famous article called johnny can't write that came out years ago and then in the last few years there was an atlantic article that came out about students not learning how to write cursive and there's always a concern that we're falling behind and that students aren't learning the literacy skills that they need, but at the same time, literacy is always changing. And so I think some of the fear is that we don't know a lot about the changes and that it's scary because it's new, um, but that innovations can be really fabulous and can expand our ways of communicating and understanding. And one of the things we have to do as educators is stay on top of that and also invite those innovations into the classroom.
0: That's really interesting. Okay, we'll get into more of that in a moment. I want to turn to you first, Yvonne, and talk a little bit about your point of view here. You wrote about this issue in The Republic recently and your concerns about how something like this technology can affect your own kids. Like You wrote about this from your perspective as a parent, as a mother. What are you worried about? I have a similar
8: mindset as Jess. I think it's definitely it's two-sided, right? It's this, it's this monster that we've created and and we'll see where we take it in the future. But I think as an adult playing around with it, I think it's amazing. It's a great, as a writer, it's a great tool to use to create first drafts. Hmm. And it's amazing because it's so interactive. Like, you know, our, usually when we talk about chatbots, you're with customer service and like two sentences in, you're like representative, representative. Right? <laughs> so you don't, you don't want to interact with the chat bot, but chat GPT is amazing. Like you can just keep on having a conversation with it and it kind of like recalibrates as you talk. It's like having a human conversation. Hmm. But I think with children, it's a little bit, part of my article was I wanted to point out like the absurdity of the culture war bills, you know, that are being introduced Mm -hmm. and advanced in our legislature, because we have real pressing parental rights issues, which is like, how do we grapple with all these new technologies and how do we set boundaries for our children and kind of make sure that this is advancing humanity and not, you know, a detriment to them, to their livelihood. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I think for children, a lot of it is they're still developing their own identities and they can't really determine what's real and what's fake. And chat GPT is really only as good as its input. Mm-hmm. Right. And so right now, Microsoft and Google are in a race to create like the most robust chat search. Mm-hmm. And Google like made a mistake when in their advertisement, like it didn't give the right answer. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times you're only as good as your inputs. And then sometimes children can't determine, you know, what is real, and what is fake, and they don't they could try to write an essay with ChatGPT, not check it, and then it's factually incorrect. You I know, have all that... don't
7: think this is a new challenge, and that I have so much faith in our youth and our teachers. And I think it's no different than Google. You can put some, you know, type something in and find information in Google that's correct or incorrect. And what's really important is to teach students and teachers how to bring information into the classroom, to how to have students question Mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. is fact, what isn't. It's just like good journalism. (laughs) And to check sources. It's just a new technology that's advancing information and communication. And I think it's really important, especially as a writing researcher, to always focus on the positive instead of sort of fear-mongering or worrying about what youth are exposed to. Mm. And to give them a lot more credit and that we can teach them the skills to take information and see, like, there are some really great things about this technology. It can write a really great email saying, thank you, if I have to write 15, and I could add something personal to the emails, but it could also save time. On the flip side, it won't replace human experience. It does not replace my voice, my memory, my ability to check sources, to do research, to have a passion and and write something that I care about. Mm. I think it's going to push us as teachers to think in more complicated ways about teaching writing that's not formulaic, that's for real purposes and audiences beyond the classroom. Uh, so I think it's really exciting.
8: Yeah. And I think what is kind of echoing what Jess just said, it's like as humans, this is, reminds us to use critical thinking as yeah. technology is changing so fast and our news cycles are so short and how we consume media is so different. More than ever, we just have to use critical thinking and apply it to to everyday life. Hmm. And I guess with something else you said, I mean, one of the positives of ChatGPT that I'm hearing like on campuses, on college campuses, is a lot of students who, you know, they might not completely understand the concepts that are being taught to them live in the classroom. They can Interact with ChatGPT and ask it, you know, can you please explain this concept to me?
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because what you're both getting at here, I think, is digital literacy, like media literacy, Mm -hmm. essentially, which I would argue as a journalist is pretty lacking in this country. (laughs) And I think we've seen the fallout of that, right? Like in terms of the rhetoric in our political divisiveness in this country, in terms of the sort of level of facts that are available and whether or not people know what's fact and what's not, that from my point of view would be concerning as an educator or as a parent. Oh, completely. I mean, that's one of
8: the, the worries of the Surgeon General, right? He came out and he said that 13 is way too young to have a social media account because students are still developing their identities and they can't really determine what's fact and what's not fact. That's why I think more than ever, critical thinking is important.
0: So it sounds like, Jessica, we need to start teaching that. Like, this has to be part of the maybe the guardrails for schools, I mean, for lawmakers. Like, New York public schools already banned ChatGPT on all of the district devices. Like, is that something you think goes too far?
7: Yeah, I actually think two things one i think there are incredible teachers out there right now across the country doing wonderful things with digital literacy mm-hmm. and inviting students to bring their expertise a lot of students are way more familiar with these digital and ever changing literacies than we are yeah. because they're digital natives and they're stay up to speed with all the the new technologies so i think tapping into their expertise and expanding but also teaching them the skills like we're talking about to be really critical in their thinking and not critical like negative, but critical in terms of critical thinking. Thinking Mm -hmm. like, what is this information? What's the source? Where is it coming from? I think too often we in education approach things from a place of fear and just bam, we're not going to have this. We're Mm. not going to do this. Mm -hmm. And that I think that that does not expand learning for this next generation. And that when that happens, students are more inclined to go find out about (laughs) it. (laughs) And then there's really amazing ways that you can use this technology to teach writing. You can invite students to ask it three different ways to write about something and then see the different choices it makes. It never does the same thing again. And then to critically analyze, you know, what examples is this technology using that I could draw from or what is not working? Um, So it it could also expand students' minds and think about what's useful and what isn't in terms of information. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: So last word to you then, Yvonne, on this. I mean, in terms of guardrails, in terms of ways that we can make sure that this kind of technology is used productively and not, you know, the opposite, what do you think should be done?
8: I think as long as they're guardrails, as long as, you know, we're as a community, as a society, we're all kind of watching over this, you know, as a family unit, we can determine, you know, what what is appropriate technology use in the house and like with educators, like making sure this is used in a way that enhances education, I think together we can all kind of move forward with this because, you know, technology is always ever evolving. This is what's moving humanity forward. It's something we created to better our lives, right? So... Mm -hmm. I think as long as we keep that in mind, I, I think it's um, it's a it's a brave new world for all of us.
0: <laughs> all right, we'll end it there on a brave new world. That is Yvonne, so a mom and member of the contribution board for the Arizona Republic, and Jessica Early, a professor in the Department of English at ASU and director of the Central Arizona Writing Project. Yvonne, Jessica, thank you both so much for coming on and for your views on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: And that'll do it for this Tuesday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for being here. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. See you back here tomorrow.
0: That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.